Brothers and sisters, I'll have you now to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, where this morning we will be looking at verses 1 through 10, some of the more famous verses of the New Testament and especially of the book of Ephesians. And as you turn there, you may recall from last week that the Apostles Paul Apostle Paul's aim in this book, and especially in chapter 1, which we looked at in its entirety last week, was to reorient these Christians who he had spent a good deal of time with. He wanted to reorient them and remind them about the world and their place in it by telling them their identity, who they were, and their purpose, their calling in this world. And so, as you've seen in the theme of our, of our whole series, is that Ephesians is really about the identity and the mission of the church. And so we took notice of Paul's teaching about our being in Christ, in Christ, and how this profound reality is the means by which all spiritual blessings are made to be ours. This is Paul's way of speaking about what Christian theologians over the course of the past 2,000 years have come to know as the doctrine of union with Christ. Our union with Christ. Through our being in Christ, our being united to Him, we have become a part of Him, such that what is true of Him is, by virtue of that union, true also then of us. This is the great the great structure of the Christian faith. He was crucified, Paul talks about in, in all of his letters. He was crucified and so too with him then we were crucified. He was raised and so likewise we were raised. And as we'll even see this morning, he was seated at the right hand of God and so we too even are seated with him in the heavenly places at God's right hand. This profound reality of our union with Christ, of course, also helps us in understanding the great mystery of marriage, as we'll see in weeks to come in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul tells us that just as a man and a woman become one flesh in marriage, so Christ and his bride, the church, have become one flesh as well. But in addition to Paul's great hymn, which we saw in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, we also saw in his prayer his purpose for the church, his understanding of what we are to be for. And so he wanted us to know these three things, as you can see on the screen. He wanted us to know our hope to which we have been called. He wanted us also to know the riches of God's glorious inheritance. And he finally wanted us to know the immeasurable power of God toward all who believe. The same power which has now raised Christ and enthroned Him as our Lord and as our King. And for this final one, we saw how Paul finished the chapter in chapter 1 with some extended comments on God's power and his supremacy over the forces of darkness, where he writes that God's power is the same power that was used to raise Christ and install him, quote, at his right hand, as he says in verse 20, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And so as I pointed out last week, I think we ought to think of the final verses of Ephesians chapter 1 sort of as Paul's thesis statement, the aim of the whole book, really. Paul's central point, we could say then, 
in this book is that through the church, God's power and glory and his grace are being triumphantly proclaimed and paraded over against the spiritual forces of darkness, the spiritual powers of our fallen world. The whole letter, therefore, is the Apostle Paul's way of showing us, the church, that our salvation from beginning to end is actually best understood in light of a greater story that's taking place. It's a bigger and more ultimate story, and it's the story of the spiritual war that is taking place between God and all the powers of evil. And in this sense, we might think of the church as God's prized possession, His spoils of war against evil. Both our existence and our ongoing spiritual health as the church then are a testament to what God has done, to His grace over against, again, the forces of the power of evil. And so once we begin to understand the book, and I would even say the gospel in this light, as the triumphant proclamation of God's victory over evil, the whole book truly begins to unfold for us in new, and I would say, exciting ways. And so we'll see that in our time together reading this morning. So let's pray that the Lord would bless us as we read. Lord, we turn to your word now, asking simply that you would help us to understand it, to know it, to cherish it, love it with all of our hearts, so that we may think it through this morning together and meditate on it, that we would be changed by our reading of it, that we would not simply be hearers of the word and deceive ourselves, but that we would also be doers. Lord, we pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen. Brothers and sisters, hear now the word of the living God. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and following, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us up seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved.